0: Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. For season 10 of the podcast, I am interviewing a dozen futurists about what life will be like 30 to 50 years from now. Today's guest is futurist Brian David Johnson, who's also known as BDJ. He was Intel Corporation's first ever futurist. Currently, he is a professor at Arizona State University's Global Futures Laboratory and the School for the Future of Innovation in Society. BDJ also works with a wide variety of organizations to help them envision their future. He holds over 40 patents and is a best-selling author. In our conversation, BDJ paints a picture of life in 2053 with an emphasis on what he calls the dirty little secret of the future, and that is that life then will look a whole lot like it does today, but with far more advanced technology. We also talk about how each of us would benefit from having a teenager as a mentor, why being fearful of novel technology is natural, and how we can overcome that fear. BDJ, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So what I'd like you to do to start is just paint a picture for what life will be like for humans in the year 2053. The type of futurist that
1: I am is I'm an applied futurist. So I work with organizations to model possible potential futures 10 to 15 years in the future. And then I work with them to say, okay, what do you need to do today, tomorrow, five years from now to actually make that future happen. So I'm a very particular type of futurist. So this notion of sort of looking out the 2053 and sort of making predictions, um, I'm not really good at that. Maybe I should have told you that before we before we got on the podcast is that I don't really make predictions. You know, So much of what I do as an applied futurist is work with organizations, with people, to think about what what is possible, and then how to enable them to kind of get there. One of the the quotes that I always love using, and I use it in a lot of talks that I give, and I use it with my students, is from Isaac Asimov. And he has a great way of sort of thinking about and talking about how what predictions are for the future, what it means to predict the future, and for. For those non-geeky people out there, Isaac Asimov is certainly a science fiction writer, but he was also called the great explainer, and he was a great non-fiction writer and wrote a lot about sort of different science and different ways of thinking about the future. So it was a big inspiration for me. So he had this great quote that basically roughly says that predicting the future is a hopeless, thankless task with ridicule to begin with and all too often scorn to end with or something like that. And so I always tell people, if you want to be a futurist, know that, that that's what you're walking into is through sort of that world. So for me, I don't really make predictions. I don't really go to say, this is what it's going to be because I try to tell people that the future is built by them. And so a lot of it is me pushing back on them, sort of saying, well, what do you, what do you think? What do you want the future of 2053 to look like? And I'm not going to dodge the question hundred percent. So I will tell you So in the work that I do, and as I look out to 2053, one of the things that I know for sure is the dirty little secret about the future. When people say, what will the future look like? And the dirty little secret about the future is the future is going to look a lot like today. It really will be. Even if you look back 50 years, 100 years, how we live, the world that we live in, how we dress, the houses that we're in, many of the houses that we live in were actually around 100 years ago. And we actually pay more money for those than not because they tell people that that's the dirty little secret. Because if you walked out into 2053 or even 2073 and you were in a Blade Runner future or you were in the Jetsons, we call that a nightmare. That's a terrible thing. Would be, you would be <laughs> so mad Because the thing is, is we're trying to make our lives comfortable, and so that's what humans are. And so, so much of what we do now. Don't get me wrong. There's going to be a lot of things underneath with technology. And business models climate and energy a lot of that's going to change but how the future will look like what it will look like that's the thing i try to call people with is to go it's actually going to look a lot like today
0: to look forward let's say 30 years like what we're talking about here 2053 it can be helpful to look back 30 years and look at 1993 and i've been thinking about this a lot is like well what was life like in 1993. And you're right, we lived in houses, we rode buses, we were on trains, we had cars, things like that. But there's been some huge technology shifts. So I think about riding the bus in 1993, which is what I did, or the first time I went to New York, I rode the subway. And people looked at magazines and they had books. And now you won't see that. You'll see almost exclusively people on their phones whether it's consuming content, listening to music, reading the news, things of that nature and so that's the biggest change that I've seen over the last 30 years and certainly over the last 15 years is just mobile technology and social those uh, uh, the social technologies so social media and then also social advances that I didn't think were possible going back to 1993 so for example being gay you know my gay friends many of them were in the closet certainly at work but even with their families and now that that has changed really dramatically as well and so i don't see the technology changes slowing down and i don't see the social changes slowing down either and i wonder if you would agree with that well
1: from a from a social standpoint i'm more of a technological futurist i think you know certainly as we move from generation to generation to generation, we are seeing sort of those shifts and geopolitically seeing some really interesting shifts and then cultural shifts with that. But I think what's, for me, what I kind of tuned into with what you said is that if we go back to that subway and you took a picture of you on that subway in 93, and, you, and by the way, I lived in New York in 93. And then if you took a picture today and you blurred it just a tiny bit, it would look almost exactly the same. And they are going to be looking at something and I'm not actually saying you're wrong. I'm actually agreeing with you because the idea though, is that they're probably looking at the news or they're probably playing a game or they're probably doing set, but it's something to distract themselves from there uh, while you're on the, while you're on the subway. And so the, the thing is, is that that really hasn't changed very much. So certainly the technology is, but I want th- to go back to, because I think you are really, really right when it comes to how we find love, how we order dinner. How we get from A to B. I mean, this is one of the things. So back in 1993, and I have a a good friend who kind of points this out to me all the time. If he had told you that you could today stand in your living room and say, Alexa, Siri or whatever, I want a pizza. And 15, 20, 30 minutes later, a pizza shows up at your door. That's magic. Back then, that's magic. You've asked for, you've asked a genie for something and it just shows up. So in that way, I I sort of agree with you. And even so how we find love, how we connect, but see, that's, what's really interesting to me is the world itself. The majority of the world hasn't changed that much, but how we connect with each other that has changed, right? But we still have to eat dinner. We still are looking for love and companionship and friendship. We're still looking to be distracted by books or games or movies that doesn't change. But it's the how we're kind of connected to people and what that connection looks like. And that's what technology has really done over the last 30 years has really changed. And, you know, I was that's what I was building those technologies back in 93. And that's sort of been the arc of my career is sort of doing that type of work. And it's connecting people in really kind of interesting and different ways. And that's what technology is really good at. And that's what it will continue to do that's, I think, what we'll continue to see. But that's, for me, the thing that's so important is always to remember that it's not the technology. That if you look at the humans, it's always about the humans. And if you look at the humans, we don't really change that much. But we are using technology in really interesting ways. That is culturally changing us little bits here and there.
0: There's a a quote I know you'll be familiar with it from Arthur C. Clarke, which is, and I'll probably botch it so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So I wonder, you know, looking back at your life, what was one of those technologies for you? For me, it was the video call. So very early on, it was so
1: science fiction and you had seen it in movies. And this is for me. So I, I do something called science fiction prototyping, which is science fiction based on science back. So I use science fiction stories to think about what it'll be like to live in the future, how we'll act and interact with technology, the legal implications, the ethical implications, all this stuff. So you literally using technology and using science fiction as a tool. I wrote a, I teach it at Arizona State University. I've written a textbook on it, but it was that thing of being able to see it, right? We've seen it in lots of movies and lots of stuff, but when it was in my living room, it was so unshaken. was so shaking. I was like, It's actually happening. Science fiction is actually happening in my living room. And also going back to our previous conversation, I could see my mom. Like, and that is so shaking because, again, it was how you could actually see it. We're such visual creatures and being able to see it and literally jumping into that person's world, just as as right now, as you and I chat, you know, in different parts of the country, that you can see into my world and I can see into your world. And to me, that was just phenomenal and it actually looked better and this was a long time ago this was in the early days of, of, of video conferencing it actually looked better than it did in in sci-fi movies. so that was the thing to me it was when it became real and i doubt i do want to add one other thing because i love that quote and i did a riff on that quote back in 2018 i wrote a, a young adult novel called wizards and robots for was published by penguin and it was out there as a kid I like to joke, can, can you guess what the book was about? It's about wizards and robots and this epic battle. <laughs> there's a line in there because it was all based on, on, on uh, the robots were the robots that I built, the, the magic was all based on quantum physics. And there's a line in that that says, magic is just science you don't understand yet. And that's also the thing for me that was a riff off that quote was actually to go, no, it might look like magic. It's just that you don't understand it yet.
0: I wonder, you know, the kids today... 10 year old, 12 year old kids, what technology are they going to look back at that is indistinguishable from magic to them? Being a futurist and looking 10, 15,
1: 20 years in the future, you know, I talk to people so like, like we're thinking about the future of work. Are you thinking about the future of workforce? Or I do a lot of work with militaries, like the future soldiers, and I do 10 to 15 years out. So it's like, well, you're talking about a population that's eight years old right now. So like in having an understanding, so I spent a lot of time in K through 12 with, with students and teachers, that's why I teach, is sort of understanding that that is the future and watching them. And what's interesting about the kids of today is for them, technology, the technology, of uh, the microwave, the video conference, the, these smartphones that are basically supercomputers that we carry around with us, they're absolutely amazing devices and wonderful examples of amazing engineering. For them, it's just normal. For them, it's...
0: It's like snow. It's BDJ, it's like snow. It's just like something that exists. And and I'll tell you a story because I I can't remember if I let you know this, but I have a seven and a four-year-old, almost five. And when there's a call, when we're on a call and it's just an audio call, they'll look at the phone and scratch their heads and we'll say, no, no, no we're not looking at faces. This one is not one of those face calls. Like they just have defaulted to video calls. That's the norm for them. So it's just, but you're right. It's like, it's so normal for them. It's, it's, it's bizarre. And it's really important. It's sort of like, so if you want to
1: take sort of our generation and go backwards, it would be like getting really excited about electricity. And by the way, my grandparents were old enough that they got excited about electricity because they lived in a little farmhouse in Minnesota that didn't get electricity until a lot later. And that idea that you can turn this, this switch and all these lights come on, like it was a big deal and it was a big thing. And then you could use it for cooking and all these other things. And so you're right, but it's, it's an important part of sort of the generational flow and why I'm so excited to be around like folks like your kids and younger generations is that they're not carrying the baggage of the past. They're not, you know, people talk about when phones had cords and phones had dials. And I was like, and thank goodness, because I remember what happened to that cord and what happened to that dial. It was not great, right? And so that idea of being able to leave that behind, but there's something that's even more important about that. And we'll get back to you to answer your question, by the way, which is they are unencumbered by that past. And so it means the way that they imagine the future is fundamentally different. And that's why I spend a lot of time. And when I am doing this type of modeling with my corporate clients or with the government and the military, I always have young folks in the room. I have undergraduates in the room. I have cadets from the military academies in the room. It is incredibly important. When I talk to CEOs and they say, Hey, BDJ, how do I prepare for the future? And I tell them, I tell all of them, get yourself a 13 year old mentor. Get yourself a 13 year old mentor because Their understanding of the world, it will be fundamentally different than you. And plus, they've got one foot in understanding technology and they have another foot still as a kid, so they don't care about you. And so it's really interesting to get their perspective because they are the ones who will come up with the new devices. They will come up with the thing that you and I in previous generations could never think of. And that's what I tell my students when I'm teaching them. I said, look, statistically, you are smarter than I am. You are more brilliant than I am. You will do bigger things in your life than I will. The only reason I'm a professor and the only thing I have on you is experience. And that's my job is to say, here's some ideas, here's some experience, here's some people that I know, and then let them go and flourish. And that's, I think, so incredibly important. like with your kids and the next generation is to say, not that, to understand that they're unencumbered and they'll be the brilliant ones. And so for me, what I'm thinking is, so what is that thing that will be technology bending for them. And it's the thing that I'm really excited about that it's the, when the veil between biology and technology comes down, the idea where there's no difference between it. And we see little bits of it with synthetic biology. We see little bits of it with CRISPR, but it is such a broad fuel. And it's such so that when I was talking to a synthetic biologist back in 2013, I started to work in this he was saying, well, if you really want to know what's going to happen, go talk to a really smart 19-year-old because they're the ones who are going to be able to know kind of where it's going because it's that imagination, right? That's the thing that holds so many of us back because, you know, nothing great was ever built by humans that wasn't imagined first. And so that imagination and not having that baggage, I think is so important. And so for me, it's that That really unexplored territory where we move just from the digital world back into the biological world and we can seamlessly move back and forth. I think that is going to be amazing, where literally your body becomes a hard drive, that the earth becomes a a record of the earth. And you can begin to think this free flowing between back and forth between DNA and ones and zeros and what is possible.
0: And I think that that is just so uncharted and so amazing. I became familiar with you by reading your book, The Future You. Fantastic book. I I took away some really, really important lessons from it. But one of them is around technology, and so I'm going to read a line or two from it, and then I have a question. We need to understand that any feelings of fear are not of the technology itself, but rather of our own feelings of powerlessness. And so I I bring this up because I had a moment. It was at the beginning of this year. I was in the gym. There's a yoga room there. I was stretching. And I had just played around with Chat TPT for the first time, and, and I truly started to think about how fundamentally AI is going to change life. And I had this moment of fear, and I think a lot of people have, are experiencing this fear, and it may be because of AI or it could be other technologies. And then that fear passed. And then I realized, oh, yeah, it's a technology. It's a tool. And how you use it is going to be different than the way that I use it. And my strengths are going to allow me to use it in a significant way. And your strengths are going to allow you to use it in a different way. And so I'd like you to talk just for a moment about technology and overcoming this fear of technology.
1: And I think you you stated it really well, Don, that it's understand number one, technology is just a tool that, you know, a hammer is just a hammer and it doesn't matter. When a hammer matters is when you use it to build a house. And I think that's really, really, really important. And understanding that, that it's about what you will do with the technology. And that's where I keep saying keeping humans at the center of what we do. And that can kind of help people say, okay, well, how will you use it? What can you do with it? How will it make your How will it make your life better? How will it make you more productive? Connect you with people, you know, all of those different things. And I think as we think about it, know that that's a way of thinking about it. That it's not about the technology; it's what you will do with the technology. Number one, number two is that feeling of fear. That feeling of fear is really natural, because it is a, it's a fear of the unknown, and it's not just a fear of the unknown because what lives in that unknown in that darkness. Is, is a fear of powerlessness, is a fear of a loss of control. And just as you were in the yoga room and thinking about AI, you had this moment where you were making mental leaps and then you could have stopped and you kind of go into that unknown. And that unknown is really scary because we don't know what's going on and we don't know what's going to happen, what could, and we could maybe do this, we could maybe do that, or maybe this might happen. And if we get this noise and we go into that unknown and we get fearful because we feel like we're going to lose control over our lives, which is perfect sense. You should be, <laughs> you should be. But then I go back to you and remember that really that unknown, that dark space is actually the landscape of innovation. That's actually where we create. We create in that area of the unknown, of that area. Of, oh, well, what, what, we don't know what's going to happen. Well, that's a good thing. That's where I generally run into that and say, great, well, what could we do with it? in this darkness and in this thing there, it really starts to lighten it up and turns the light on to go, hey, wow. And that's, again, I'm an optimist because I know people build the future. So I get really, really excited about it and say, here's all the things that we can do and, and do that. And then the third thing I do want to call out as, as an engineer and a person who does do something called threat casting, which is thinking about possible potential threats, back to my hammer example. You, know, you can't build a hammer that is sufficient enough to build a house that is also not sufficient enough to bash somebody's head in. And so that idea, but the thing is, good news is we're not running around with hammers in our heads. And that's because human beings are incredibly resilient, right? We have laws that say, no, you, it, putting, a, putting a hammer in somebody's head is not okay. We also have norms and culture that kind of go, even if it wasn't illegal, we're like, don't do that. Like you teach your kids, don't do that. Not because you don't want them to go to jail. It's just, you don't do that. And that's, I think a thing that's really important is in that fear we have control, but the control isn't of the technology, it's of the culture and the people and how we bring it into our lives, how we bring it into our personal lives, how we bring it into our families, how we bring it into our, 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 our cultures. And that, I think, again, is that's a point of power that, again, the technology doesn't care. We have to have those conversations. And that's what I always push people then is, number one, don't be fearful. Actually, it's opportunity that, that you're there. But then the other part is, if you are fearful, t- let's talk about it let's get out there and say, well, what is the future you want? What is the future you want to avoid? And start having those conversations because you get to pick, you have that agency. And in that fear, that helps to push it away is to, to see the opportunity, but at the same time to go, okay, well, wait a minute, there are some dark things there. That's okay. But let's talk about them now. Let's just not be afraid and give up our agency for the future. Let's actually dig into it and really talk to people about it.
0: Last question. And I asked this question because I'm I'm concerned about the way that we evaluate the past based on today's laws and today's social conventions and mores and things of that nature. So the behavior of people 50 years ago or 100 years ago or even longer ago, it doesn't align with what's acceptable today. And so what I'd like to do is ask you about what are we doing today that in 2073 humans are just going to look back and say... What were they thinking? What are we doing wrong today that, that you know, the people of the future are just going to say, my goodness, but, you know, what, what, what in the
1: world? And that's why I love this question, because I do work with historians all the time. I work with a cultural historian. I wrote a book with a cultural historian, Jamie Carrett. They, they, the name of the book is Vintage Tomorrow's. And what they will tell you is that history doesn't repeat itself. History is the language we use to talk about the future. Because we don't have a language. We can only use the language of the past and talk about the future. That's why the past is so important, but then understanding that difference between the past and the future, I think is great. And so for me, when I start to think about it, we look out to 2073, I kind of go back to, again, a little bit of the past. I go back to the QWERTY keyboard. So hopefully everybody remembers the QWERTY keyboard. If you look down at your keyboard, or if you pull it up, that's the keyboard that right, it says QWERTY across the, lot, the upper left corner of the keyboard, it says QWERTY. The history of the QWERTY keyboard, of course, it wasn't with computers. Of course, it came from typewriters. And why was the QWERTY keyboard laid out like that with a typewriter? Well, because it was trying to slow human beings down. The idea, as you remember, you've got the uh, the typewriter and it had the little arms that was whack 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 whacking, right? You had all those things. If many of you, you had the typewriter, if not, you can search it online. That's why we created the that's why we created the internet so you can look up this crazy stuff. Look at the me- the mechanical action of a typewriter. It's those arms. And so if the human being typed very quickly, they would get, they would go over each other and it would gum up the works. And so the QWERTY keyboard was designed to slow human beings down so that we would have this normal pace of typing. And so that got adopted. It wasn't the only keyboard that got adopted. And over the years, people have tried to bring in different ones, but that got adopted. And so then it got brought into our computers, which is insane. We are actually using an industrial age input device to slow us down. There's no keys anymore. There's no arms that would get messed up anymore. There's no reason for us to have this except for history for us to understand how to interact with this amazing piece of technology that has ones and zeros on it. And then as we kind of move forward, we even have it on our devices where we're not even using all of our fingers. We're just using our thumbs. And we're using a very similar thing. So for me, the, the ridiculousness of that is that we're always sort of bringing this in, using the past to kind of teach us and how we interact with these amazing devices and technologies. I think as we look out into the future, how we interact with our devices, this idea that we had keyboards, this idea that we had just screens, this idea that, of how technology was something that was separate and it was all these devices and all these things, because one of the things I'm starting to see happen and that I can't wait to happen is we're starting to not use keyboards, right? We can just talk. So human beings are good at, we talk to each other. There's nuances in our, in our speech and in our languages and in our cultures that, are, that sort of show the sort of wonderful complexity of what it means to be a human. And right now our devices don't understand that at all. Our devices are just trying to get the word right. And so there's so much more communication and so much more language there for our ability to talk to our devices and for our devices to talk to us. And then for us then to talk to other people, also people who may not even know our language or may not know our culture becomes really interesting. And then as you move it a little bit forward, and this is something that I've written about called relationship computing, where you start to understand that your devices value you as a human and they value you and they understand you in a way. So that they, so that you're interacting with them. So you, just living in your house is a way of programming the house. It knows you more and, and understanding your, if you're in a good mood, if you're in a bad mood, understanding that it could, I always talk about people, you could optimize an, an elevator. People talk about the internet of things and smart devices and smart buildings. I'm like, here's a really smart building. And I want an elevator that when I get in to go to work. And I'm going up, or I've got a meeting, or whatever, and the elevator knows that I'm in a bad mood. I want that elevator to tell me a dad joke. Like, that would be awesome. <laughs> I love dad, right? I love dad jokes. I tell them all the time because kids love them, right? And so, that idea of understanding the complexity of what it means. And so, this idea that we had keyboards, that we talked to our things, that we had these devices then how we interact with it and how our technology understands with it, there's all these barriers that we have as a legacy of the past and as we move into the future. I think as we start to, how we even conceptualize our technologies, that it looks really fundamentally different because if we do it right, again, we we need to build the future and we will build the future. And I always push my students and everybody to say, if we're building it right and we keep humans at the center of the technology and technology is there to serve us and then also to connect us with people, That becomes that relationship that we have becomes really interesting, and it really embraces the complexity of what it means to be human.
0: What fills you with a sense of optimism?
1: I think there's two things that fill me with a sense of optimism. The first is what made me an optimist 26 years ago as I started doing being a futurist, and that's that I know that human beings build the future, that the future isn't fixed, that we have agency and we have the ability to shape it. And that it is a requirement that we all try to shape our future and don't let somebody else do it for us. And to me, over the years, that has filled me with more and more optimism. The more people I talk to, you had mentioned my book, The Future of You. That's why I wrote it is to give that agency to people to go, no, you can actually go out and, and fundamentally change and build your future. And here's how. Here's a, here's a, got some workbooks and things to do it. So for me, and then seeing it happen. Not only for myself, you know, my background in technology and the work that I've done, you know, in the early 2000s when I was brought into the Intel Corporation and I was their chief futurist, I did smart TV. So this crazy idea back at the turn of the century that we were going to use the internet to watch television. And that happened. You know, billions of chips came out and I've seen it. And so that makes me really, really excited about the future because then I meet more people and kind of share that. And then I think the the other part, even being a a threatcaster, and so I, I look at threats to national security and global security, but what gets me very excited is then that we can do something about it. And I'm working with really smart women and men who are really trying to make us all safer. So that, that fills me with a lot of optimism. The other part is just talk to kids. Talk to kids about the future. Talk to kids about technology. That's the whole thing is, is I've been very fortunate to do lots of reports and things like that where instead of just talking about the next generation, I get to go talk to them. I did a report for the Institute for Engineering and Technology based in London back in 2020, where I did a listening tour across the United Kingdom, talking to kids about the future and technology and what they wanted. And I was in the best mood after getting off the phone with those kids, number one, because they're so optimistic that crazy kid ideas, and I love crazy kid ideas. And then at the same time, they're just funny. They're just funny. And I think that part of it, when you start thinking about the future and you start thinking about this stuff, and again, embracing the complexity of human beings, that's where you just see it. When you see it just right in front of you is sort of talking to the future, which is talking to children.
0: BDJ, I appreciate your optimism. Thank you for your wisdom. And thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. We will return next week when I interview futurist Marco Valenius, who joins us from his home in Helsinki. Marku will paint a picture of how life on Earth will change over the next 30 to 50 years. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.